Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, my name is Eric Easta. And I'm Scott Raveling. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. And today we have uh, a special guest. Um, I was I was recently on my anniversary trip and I was reading a book on economics as one does when they are on their anniversary trip. No, no one does that. And we, we, we're aware of that. Um, but I was reading a, a book called The Foundations of a Free and Virtuous Society by Dylan Pommen. And I thought it was super helpful. Um, He's a research fellow at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, where he serves as an executive director of the Journal of Markets and Morality. So I reached out to him and said, hey, we'd love to have you on the show to talk about uh, this book. And so Dylan is our special guest this morning. Welcome, Dylan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so I, I gave your academic bio, but um, how else would you introduce yourself to let people know who you are? Um, well, I'm a, I'm a husband and father. Uh, I've, my wife and I have four kids, um, a lifelong resident of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, and otherwise, yeah, I mean, the professional stuff is all, is all accurate. <laughs> I, think. Um, I am an executive editor though, I should say, not director. Uh, of the okay. Um, so, I mean, that, that does involve, you know, planning the publication, but also putting commas in the right spot and, you know, the normal editing stuff. So, uh, but that I like was it. my verbal typo there. My bad. <laughs> it, it definitely says editor on my paper. So, okay. Well, very good. Um, so in, in looking through the book, uh, at one point in, in the book, you said life is economic, but economics is not all of life. Um, what did you mean by that? And how, how do people err in making economics all about life? Yeah. So I think that there's actually the error goes two ways. And um, I, I got that phrase from uh, economic historian uh, Ross Emmett, and he he in turn got it basically from uh, Frank Knight, uh, the Chicago School economist. Um, and uh, the the one error is to say that economics doesn't matter, that all you need are the right intentions. All you need is faith or maybe the right moral vision. Um, and the economic stuff, uh, you know, that's just all getting in the way. Um, on the other hand, you have, um, uh, people who, you know, are more on the economic side or the business side, um, who might emphasize that at the exclusion of, um, the higher things of life or moral questions, um, or they might simply reduce all things to economics. So an example of this would be, you know, uh, even though there's maybe some fruitful insights that come of it come from it, but Gary Becker, the economist, um, wrote a whole book about using economic analysis to uh, understand the family or to understand, you know, mm. there's there's some interesting side to this, but the a, a marriage isn't just a contract um, legally, sure, but it's not it's not an exchange. It's just fundamentally different, um, and and there's a danger in both ways uh, when we when we leave these two things separate. Uh, either to reduce everything to a matter of economic exchange or, or a matter of, you know, material um, uh, wealth or or anything along those lines. Or on the other hand, uh, to say that, you know, that stuff doesn't matter. Um, mm. 
Uh, the example I give uh, right in the introduction of the book is uh, fair trade coffee. Um, a friend of mine, uh, an economist um, in Florida, uh, Victor Clark, I wrote a little book about uh, fair trade coffee, and it's it's I think a, a perfect example to to get at this because people like fair trade coffee, and I understand the impulse. It's well, who doesn't want to be fair, right? And the the idea is we want to help. Yeah, and I love coffee, so I may and I you know uh, I had a, a friend at seminary talked about you know I don't understand how. Uh, everyone in the world drinks coffee, and yet the nations that produce coffee are some of the poorest in the world. You know, mm. some, something seems wrong about that. Um, and so fair trade coffee is very well intended. It's meant to to help these poor farmers and these coffee producing nations um, have have a bit more uh, for to provide for their needs. Um, but the problem that uh, Victor Clark points out uh, is that what they end up doing is incentivizing more people to get into the coffee growing business when it's just not going to make that much more money in the long run. So they, they could be growing other crops in, in their property. Um, they could be finding a different niche or they could be using their land for different purposes. But the the promise of a sort of secure um, income that, that comes from being part of one of these fair trade cooperatives um, and the, you know, compared to the risk of trying something else, um, tends to steer them in that direction and very unintentionally and unfortunately locks them into uh, a position of poverty rather than um, a more dynamic situation of wealth creation. So that's an example of, of people with very good intentions, but who just don't quite get some of the the economic issues um, involved that if we want to help the poor, we need to know how wealth is created. Mm. Um there's there's no other way to do it, right. um, and when we don't understand that, we might we might have great intentions, and sometimes we can even still do some good, but um, sometimes we can do harm. Uh, not to mention just not helping. Sometimes we can actively hurt people um, against our intentions. Some some great books in that regard would be um, like Toxic Charity, for example, or When Helping Hurts. Um, I believe David Fickert and uh, is one of the authors there. Um, so I would recommend that that sort of a thing. But that's the idea. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I do use that as a refrain through the whole book that life is economic, but economics is not all of life. Um, but I use it both ways. Um, mm-hmm. that there's there's a tendency, especially I think in politics, policy making um, tends to be really wonky. You know, it's all about, oh, well, we got the data and we did the analysis and so on and so forth. Um, and it can often you can often lose the human side um, to these what should be very humane policies. Now, on the other side, you have, again, examples like fair trade coffee or you know, certain missions projects or charities, maybe very well intentioned, but may not really see the consequences of uh, the work that they're doing in the way that they're doing it. Mm. So so when you're talking about economics, so help me, I, uh, I did recognize your counsel for Eric about how marriage is an economic or mer- merely a contract. So I appreciate you counseling him. Uh, reading your book on his uh, anniversary trip, uh, I didn't. I didn't get an anniversary trip, so I haven't read it. What are you talking about when you're talking about economics? I mean, help me just as a layperson yeah. be really clear about what we're talking about here. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there's a there's a few correct answers. I think um, uh, I think that the most basic kind of textbook definition of economics comes from uh, Lionel Robbins. Um, and it's the the allocation of scarce goods for um, limited ends, uh, which have alternative uses. Um, and 
I like that definition because he very purposefully makes it non-materialistic, even though a lot of economics seems to kind of have a materialistic uh, presumption or bias to it. But he says, you know, if you're a student uh, at in, in college uh, and you want to study both philosophy and mathematics, but you don't have the time to do both, well, the choice between them is economic. Mm. So the scarce resource in that sense is your time. Um, so it's, in that sense, a study of decision-making, of human action uh, would be one way of putting it. Um, why we choose one thing over another, what incentivizes our choices, um, and and then, you know, thinking more broadly, it becomes a social science. It's not just a personal, um, you know, uh, body of prudence, although it can be used for that, but it, it can be used also to, to think about whole societies, whole markets and industries. Um, so that would be one, and I think that's a correct definition. However, economics actually began as political economy. So uh, Adam Smith, uh, when he wrote his Wealth of Nations, there was no such thing as economics as a discipline at all. Um, in fact, he was a moral philosopher. I mean, his first book was entirely on morality, or actually more like moral psychology, but it's really fascinating, mm. uh, his theory of moral sentiments. Um, and then after him, you start to get the first political economists. And what political economy is, and much more what my book is about, um, is not just economics, but about the integration of those economic insights uh, with things like political theory, ethics, morality, um, religion, theology, philosophy, um, all together for the sake of, you know, the common good in society. So it's a broader kind of interdisciplinary um, discipline. Uh, so that would be the second correct answer to some degree, although not a lot of people uh, would call themselves political economists anymore. Although uh, Robbins actually thought that the economists shouldn't do away with it, that, it'd be, that it was really useful um, and should be kind of the for him, the proper normative side of economics. So instead of just the positive analysis of, oh, we ran our models and we we have this prediction or whatever, uh, there's still the question of, well, what should we do? And that that's that has a moral mm. sound to it, rightly so, right? That's that's normative. And to him, um, what what that should be um, is political economy instead. The discipline in general has gone towards things like welfare economics, which are um, similar. They're not necessarily bad, but um, things like uh, trying to get Pareto optimality. So they have these kind of welfare functions that they claim are, you know, somewhat value free. Oh, we're still kind of just doing analysis. But I think I think there's a lot of pitfalls there um, when you're ignoring just all of these other disciplines, which in our real life, um, the spiritual and the material are united. Right. We're body and soul as human beings. Um, and therefore, you know, you can study just the material part of yourself and we should, we have medical doctors, we have biologists, um, that sort of thing, but we're not reducible to that in the same way. The same is true about our societies, our communities, our nations, um, and our economies. Um, so lastly, um, I do give a definition in my book, which is meant to be a more theological take on economics It's what I'm talking about, not actually economics, but an economy, um, mm -hmm. An economy is the cultivation of creation through human labor for the provision of human needs through relationships of exchange. Um, and then I go through, that's the third chapter. I go through and just break down that definition. You know, one section is cultivation of creation. The next is through human labor. The next is provision of human needs. And the last is relationships of exchange. So I kind of give a definition and then I break it down from, you know, a theologically and biblically informed point of view. So I hope that answers your question. I hope that wasn't too 
detailed. Well, thank you. No, it was uh, it was wide ranging for sure. I <laughs> appreciate it. Well, I I really enjoyed that particular part of the book, um, especially with the foundation of uh, cultivation of creation. We we are, God created, and we are stewards in His creation. And when you describe economy, you're describing a a proper engagement of that creation, um, cultivation, stewardship, all those things. And it just, there was just a, a cohesiveness to it that I thought was really helpful um, in thinking about that. Yeah. And I think, I think there's something really exciting about it. I mean, it can, especially if you think about economics, people usually kind of just as an impulse, reduce it to, Oh, that's like a study of money or something like that. And mm. it involves money. Prices are important. We can talk about that perhaps. Um, but I, I think this bigger vision really helps put it in a in a better perspective that it's it's part of our mission as human beings to cultivate the earth that god created he told us to be fruitful and multiply he put adam and eve in the garden and and in order to till it to keep it to cultivate it um the bible begins with a garden and it ends with a city right ends with civilization Hmm. um it's not exactly you know the tree is back the tree of life is back but it's not back to a garden it's it's a city with a, a river and it's got the tree of life on either side with you know leaves uh, from its branches to heal the nations um that's a vision of development that's a vision of uh, a world that is still in the process of being created very good by god except that he wants us part of his creation to be part of that development to to be co-creators with him hmm. And at one point in the book, uh, you worked through some what if experiments, what if things didn't exist, um, like private property or free prices, but one of them was profit. And I liked the connection to the cultivation of creation um, with profit. You're basically, if if you are engaging creation well as a steward um, and working it well and getting more out of it than you started with, not, not because of um, not because of stealing or anything like that, but just proper cultivation, the natural result of that would be profit. And that, that could be monetary, that could be some other gain, some other way. Um, but looking into that, looking at profit through that lens as, did I cultivate creation well or not? Um, that I, I've never thought of it that way. So thank you for that. Um, mm-hmm. And and that I guess I'm just keeps. I just keep saying this book is helpful. I don't even have a question there, um, but that that was a helpful way to look at that because that generally there's you're you're thinking about profits and I think the um, the environment we often hear about oh profit is because of greed or profit is because of um, taking taking something that you shouldn't have taken. Um, there are bad ways of getting profit, but there are also good mm-hmm. ways of getting profit and in. in if you if you stewarded well, you could potentially create more than what you started with, because of our engagement of creation. Yeah, it, it's something that it is hard to abstract from those those connotations, but I think it's it's very helpful to do so. Um, Pope John Paul II, in his encyclical Contestimus Annus, uh, talks about how profit is actually an indicator that someone is being a good steward in their biz- business, um, and I think that's the right perspective to to start there um, and then then to ask questions well how is this profit obtained right because what profit mm. is is just when revenue exceeds cost um, if your cost exceeds your revenue your business won't stay in business I mean you can you can get by on on loans for a little while and other sort of uh, investment but to after a certain 
time, if you're not making a profit, you go bankrupt or you downsize at the very least. And mm. um, the product you're making is no longer available to people. The people you're employing no longer have jobs. Um, and you can you can look at this uh, on on that kind of smaller level on a personal level. You can you can think about your own family income, um, but you can also think about it in terms of an economy. So this is why I think economic growth is so important. People make these same sort of statements about oh, people are pursuing growth at all costs, and I don't think it should be pursued at all costs, but it absolutely mm. should be pursued. The alternatives to growth are stagnation, recession, and depression. Does anyone want those things? Do we think those things are good? We in and not just good in the sense of like pleasurable, but they're not. They're especially not good for the poor among us. They're they're not good for people well, moral who good. really need that help. Uh, who are struggling, um, they do better when the economy is growing. Um, so it it's it's the sort of thing that if you can take that step back and ask yourself, well, what what really are we talking about? Um, before we jump into the moral judgment, we uh, we absolutely should get to the moral side of it, because I do think it does matter how people make a profit and what they do with their profits. Um, but to to take a step back and, and first make sure we're on the same page, you know, we know what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about something that is fundamentally um, at least neutral, if not potentially very good. Um, and in that sense, uh, uh, something that we shouldn't just have this knee-jerk, oh, you know, company X had profits of whatever, um, therefore it must be bad and hurting people. Um, in fact, it, you know, a lot of, there's been uh, surveys, a lot of people really drastically misjudge uh, the profit margins of companies, a lot of Americans. They, I think the average mm -hmm. guess is that the typical profit would be 36% profit margin, whereas typical profits around like 5%, maybe, maybe lower, like, especially like, like, I think as Walmart has like one to 2% profits per year. I mean, they're, you know, restaurants, food industries, really, really thin profit margins. Um, the, the one that was, was actually aligned with people's expectations was tobacco. Mm. So where there, where there is a uh, inelastic demand due to a chemical addiction. Yeah. And you know what? I think there is a moral problem with that, um, but that's not the typical profit margin at all. That's um, really the exception, thankfully, um, to to the rule. So, um, yeah, having that having that definition and thinking about, you know, God wants us to be productive. And when we are, it doesn't just benefit us, thankfully. Um, it, mm. it, it almost can't um, because you can't be profitable without an exchange. In uh, an exchange is where both people think that they benefited. Um, so if I, you know, my simple example I use, if I want a candy bar and I go to the the local, you know, gas station, I give them a dollar, they give me a candy bar. I'm happier with the candy bar than my dollar. They're happier with my dollar than the candy bar. It's a win-win. We walk away and we say, we're both better off. Um, so at the very least, I've helped that gas station, <laughs> right? Um, and they've helped me. Um, they've profited off of the dollar, um, assuming, you know, their total revenue exceeds their costs. Um, but they haven't hurt me. They've helped me. Um, so mm. not to say that there might not be dietary concerns about me eating a candy bar, but <laughs> but you know what I mean? Uh, you, you get the basic idea. So <laughs> That's good. So, so our listeners, um, one of the, one of our taglines for this, this podcast is that we want people to um, identify their tribe as the church. Um, and their hope in the kingdom of God rather than find both in the kingdom of man. So that's kind of the 
the listener, uh, people at least like that. So they keep listening. Um, but with that type of listener in mind, how, how can our listeners use the ideas in your book to better engage the communities in which they inhabit? So there's a variety of ways, um, I think. Uh, I mean, first of all, um, it begins with the question, what does it mean to be human? Um, and that's that's almost the first question that the Bible deals with. In fact, each, each there's five chapters, but I basically, in the introductions to each chapter, give a, a little small exposition of Genesis 1 through 4. So I really start right at the beginning, too, as far as the biblical foundation for what I'm, I'm talking about. Um, and this sort of thing is is crucial, I think, to any Christian engagement in the world and certainly within our churches and in our communities. I think it, it absolutely starts there. First of all, we're, we're created by God. So that's, that's why we go to church, right, to, to worship him. Uh, we go because we're also fallen into sin and we need redemption. We go for grace. We go for communion, um, not only with, with God, um, with Christ, but uh, with one another uh, for that reconciliation um, that, that the world so longs for. So just by being good Christians and being great communities, we're modeling a different way the world can be. Um, so, I mean, step one, just just be the church, be be what you're called to be. Um, next one is, is remember that everyone is equally created in the image of God. We all have this inherent dignity. We all are created, um, you know, when I, I try, I like thinking and I, and I invite readers to think in this way, reading Genesis, not so much uh, with the question of, okay, what, what was the original intent or what was going on here? But just imagine if you're reading this cold and you get to verse, you know, 26 of chapter one, it says, God created man in his own image. What do you know about God at that point? Mm. Well, the first thing you know is God likes to make stuff right? Like he's doing nothing but making things, right? So that's got to be part of it, right? And I get into other things. God is rational. He's naming things. He's categorizing them. He's separating them. Um, he's judging them to be good. Um, and we also are rational. And so there's everyone you meet, This they qualify. Um, they are equally made in the image of God. Um, so if someone in your community is struggling, on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, do we have a food pantry? Do we have, you know, extra, you know, a clothing drive or that sort of thing? That can all be really helpful. Um, but I, I think sometimes people either they don't notice what they're already doing or they just don't even think of in terms of, well, how did I get to where I am? And how can I, instead of just helping someone for, you know, for a one-time need, how can I be a mentor to them? Look at them with as much potential as I had. Um, that they can get there too. So in my own parish, I'm I'm actually Greek Orthodox, um, and we don't talk all that much about Christian social thought. We had uh, a really rough 70 years um, in the 20th century, and so we're a little behind uh, some uh, you know more Western traditions such as Roman Catholic and um, Calvinism and, and others. Um, so you know you're not going to necessarily find people at coffee hour talking about solidarity and subsidiarity. There might be people who care about those things, but I don't know that they're thinking about them in quite the nuanced theological way um, that that you at least could find some people in other churches. But um, we have uh, a decent amount of refugees from uh, Eritrea in Ethiopia in our parish, um, and. Anytime they've come, it's been years ago since they they first joined our church, but immediately someone said, hey, do you need a job? 
I, you know, my brother owns a factory, right? You know, or I, or I have a, I have a cleaner, so you could come and help. And, you know, they, they help people, not just, you know, they, they did help financially, they did help with, you know, basic needs, but they also helped them get on their feet um, and really be able to see a new future for themselves in that context. And I think having that right view of the human per person is just so fundamental for that, that if you start with that, um, you'll, you'll go so far. We have a, a at, at the ACT Institute, we have a video uh, series and we have a, a documentary video series is Poverty Cure and the documentary is uh, Poverty Inc. Um, and the tagline for Poverty Cure, which I always really liked, was it showed a little girl um, and it said, "I am the solution." Right? Uh, not not the you know not to say that it's, it's wrong, but not the the benevolent uh, you know developed Westerner being the solution, but the people um, all over the world or even domestically. Um, they are the they have the potential. Um, what we need is to find ways to help them uh, use that um, to be creative as, as God created them to be. Um, that's how you end up having something to exchange with others and to better your own condition. And at the same time, um, you know, by contributing to the economy, bettering all those around you. That's helpful. And I, and I like the emphasis on um, participation in the community rather than remaining an, an individual on the outside that gets um, gets goods one way or the other. No, you, it's an, an invitation into uh, into community and in creation of more communities, really, which I think is... Yeah, and, and I mean, charity is absolutely essential. There are times, especially like emergencies, for example, natural disasters, people just need their basic needs met. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, that's, that's great, and it's great when churches are involved in that sort of a thing. Um, but think about the nature of that relationship. It's one way, right? It's, it's people over here who have giving to people over there who don't, um, an economic an exchange, a market is people over here who have, and people over here who have, and they're exchanging and they go away better off. Um, you want to get people to the point where you say to them, you have something to offer our community, right? We want you here not just to be a recipient of our charity, but because you, we believe you to be an essential uh, part of the body of Christ, right? That you have, you have some role to play that we are impoverished uh, for being without. Um, so you absolutely have to have those, those personal relationships and that the integration of people, um, which of course, in reality is, is very hard. Um, I talk about other people being fundamentally annoying uh, I'm, I'm an introvert. <laughs> I don't, I don't actually, I'm not actually that cynical, but, um, but certainly, uh, you know, relationships are hard. Uh, it's, it's great to write about it and to be kind of idealistic, but in real life, that looks like a lot of, you know, saying the wrong thing, um, mm. bothering people, being bothered by people, hopefully, uh, a lot of apologizing and forgiving, um, if you're doing those things, uh, then you can build one another up. Um, but that, that requires us to, you know, as much as I, I don't think it's a terrible thing, but maybe, maybe have a few more real in-person friends than you do Facebook friends, perhaps. Right. <laughs> um, or at least don't let it be a substitute. Mm. Well, and I, I think what's helpful about that emphasis, especially when we're talking about the church and what it means to be the church um, if I am engaging in relationship and engaging in community and working through those difficult things of having to ask for forgiveness and, me and maybe messing up and doing all that stuff, that that is the hard route that 
more likely makes us look like the church, then um, it's almost going the just the the giving one directionally is almost back to the all economics is is or all life is economics, and it's just this. There's a transaction that needs to happen, and it's just a monetary thing, and th- that's easy. I can just do that, and I don't have to think about it anymore. The um, at least my perceived interaction with the problem is now no longer because I gave. But the the real if we're going to be the church here, uh, it would be to engage and have those relationships, and it gets messy and difficult and. We, we interact with annoying people for sure. Um, I, that, yeah, I think that's a, that's a helpful and that's a good challenge for me even. That's good. For everyone, I hope. I mean, yeah. It's, it, like it's, it really isn't easy as anyone, you know, you just had an anniversary. I hope it was a very good one. Um, but I'm <laughs> sure, you know, even, you know, the, your closest relationships, they, they involve struggles. They involve times where you got to sit down and say, all right, let's talk this out. You know, let's, let's work through this. Um, and when you do, you you come out better for it in the end. Um, there is there is an aesthetic side to relationships, to human society, um, that you have to constantly be denying yourself in order to live in a two-way relationship with someone else. You have to be able to say no to you to say yes to the other person. Um, and yeah, nobody likes doing that <laughs> on paper. Um, but when you do it, um, I always, I, I sometimes, uh, you know, one thing I didn't mention, you mentioned other things about my bio. I do have a, a personal blog called Everyday Ascendicism, um, where I write more just about um, Christian spirituality. Um, and uh, one thing I, I've come back to over the years is that uh, the narrow way seems harder until you do it. When you do it, you never regret it. Right. The, the hard, mm. the hard stuff of doing the right thing are easier after the fact, the easy stuff of the broad road um, are the things that you regret are the things that, you, you know, that linger with you. So, yeah, you make the easy choice in the moment, but it's harder in the long run. Mm. Um, it's hard to have those good relationships, but they're the most rewarding thing ever. Right. Um, they're, they're absolutely worth it. They're worth putting in the effort. They're worth taking the risk. Um, there's a lot. And I don't know if I, I maybe emphasize this enough, although it's in, in the book, but there's a lot of this that's about risk taking. Um, that's why, um, you know, it's foundations of a free and virtuous society. Well, freedom involves risk. Um, and that's scary to a lot of people. That's why a lot of people don't like the idea of economic liberty or unfortunately today, there's a lot of people who don't even seem to like political liberty or religious liberty. Um, I think these are all essential. I think they're all interconnected um but they are all a risk um they they involve you know exposing ourselves to people who are very different than us um and like any relationship that's that's gonna mean some conflict that's gonna mean some misunderstanding um and we can get through that peacefully um if we are aesthetically kind of living out that repentance um of of apologizing forgiving all that sort of stuff carrying your cross really um or we can just try to force other people to be like us or find a way to get rid of the people who aren't. Um, I don't think that's in any way uh, worthy of the dignity of the human, of, 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 of the image of God um, to treat people like that. Um, and so that's why I come down in favor of freedom, um, not for any libertine reasons. I think there are limits uh, to what we can do with our freedom. Um, but I do think that there's, there's a basic level of freedom in society that um is entailed in our creation after the image of god 
That's good. I, w- I was thinking about um, this from a policy perspective, and, w- and we don't necessarily have any any policy makers in our audience, but we do have dollar spenders. We do have people that that interact in in uh, the economy and and decide with dollars that's going to go this way or this way. Um, how would you encourage people to spend their money? Um, and one of, one of the examples I have in mind, you, you talked about the fair, fair trade coffee piece, but it's it's easy to maybe I Google a little bit and I and I see that there's unjust labor treatment. Um, maybe we talk about China and, and the Uyghurs or or something where you go, oh, they're they're making this product and I'm aware of it. Um, now maybe I shouldn't spend my money that way. And then if you depending on how much you Google, there's there's probably not going to be a a limit to how uh, where there is un- injustice. So how would you recommend to people? Hey, think about spending your dollars this way. Um, in a, in a moral way, but also a, an appropriately economic way. Yeah, I think I think there's so there's there's a few distinctions I guess I would draw. It depends on what you mean by unjust. Um, I think like forced labor, unpaid, mm-hmm. you know, like slavery. Yeah, like boycott that if you can. Absolutely, don't don't reward that in any way. Um, if by unjust, you say, well, the wages are low and the conditions are bad. I don't think we should be happy about that. But I immediately think of the question, well, the wages are low compared to what? And the conditions are bad compared to what? Um, what might look terrible from our perspective, um, and, and again, not to say that we should be expect people to just stay there and be happy with it. We should want development. We should want them to go beyond that. Um, but in a lot of a lot of countries where things are made cheaply, um, the alternative is subsistence farming, which is definitely worse <laughs> in terms of conditions, in terms of child labor, in terms of you know work injuries, long hours, um, poverty, just po- level of poverty. If a famine comes, you know you could potentially starve to death in a way that um, having a broader division of labor, which uh, you know things like factories um, certainly facilitate. Um, gives people a bit more security. Um, so uh, I, I would commend an essay by uh, the economist Paul Hain. Uh, it's called Our Economist Basically Immoral. Um, he's a great writer. It's only about 10 pages long. Um, and in there, he gives this example of a gizmo factory. Um, and he says, you know, it's in some third world country. And then you got people in Australia who are upset about uh, the conditions of the gizmo factory. Um, and so they want, they say that's not fair. They should be paid this amount and they should have this, these certain conditions uh, that we would expect here in Australia. But the problem is no one in Australia wants that job, right? And the people in whatever third world country it is all do want that job. And he makes this comment of everyone who has the right to be consulted has been consulted. Um, so there is, there is a point at which you can Google and you can say that's all awful. And it is. I'm not again, I'm not saying you should say, oh, everyone in Bangladesh or wherever should just be happy with their factory conditions. Well, no, we should hope that they continue to get better. But we should ask ourselves, what's the trajectory there? Um, and and I, am I just imposing a standard that's completely unrealistic from my perspective on, on someone else? Um, so it gets complicated. The other side to it is Sometimes people can't afford to do that research. They literally mm. don't have free time. Sometimes people don't have the money to pay for the more expensive and supposedly more ethically uh, manufactured thing. Um, again, especially the poor. Um, you know, if you're 
just looking to clothe your family and get them a quick meal and all that sort of stuff, you're not going to do this research. And I don't blame people for not doing it. So I think it depends a lot on each person and their own situation. You have that time, you have that knowledge, you have the ability to change your consumption habits, then yeah, you know, follow your conscience. Absolutely. Um, but, but at least, at least try to take a step back, ask yourself, you know, is my judgment appropriate for all situations? Not mm. just my own. And then also, am I, am I unfairly using this to then, you know, say, well, anyone who, who continues to use this product must not be good and ethical like me. Well, then, then it becomes about building up your own pride rather than actually doing the right thing. Um, you might find yourself judging someone who really economically has no better choice than to buy the cheap hot dog and, you know, or whatever, <laughs> whatever product it is you have in mind. Um, a lot of these questions uh, come down to prudence. Uh, prudence is a cardinal virtue, um, but by its very nature, it's about how to do the best with less than perfect choices. Um, in many ways, that's very much what economics is about. It's a it's a science of prudence. Um, so I think knowing economics can help us make more prudent choices, um, can help us ask, well, where, what can I use our, my scarce resources or my communities, my churches, scarce resources? How can I use those best? Um, how can I be less wasteful? Mm. Um, but there, but there are limits. You, you just can't do everything. It'd be great if we, you know, we could just look around and say, well, we got so many poor people in the community and we should, we should just be able to help them. Well, great. Yeah, we should, but. Let's just start with like helping one of them, right? Let's, let's, let's find a way to effectively help someone and let's go from there um, rather than holding ourselves to a standard that maybe we can't today um, obtain and then saying, well, you know, what's the point or something like that. Um, so there's, th that's not, it's not a, a very punchy answer, I suppose, but um, that's kind of the point uh, to some degree of the book. I, I try to give people helpful categories for thinking about these difficult questions, but the answers aren't always going to be just uniform for every person or community or situation. It's going to depend a lot upon your context and what options are available to you. Hmm. So can I push in on that just a little bit? Sure. Helping one, um, you know, one poor person nearby you. Uh, I assume that you're, uh, you're thinking economically at that point where you're talking about some sort of exchange with that person rather than just, you know, as we would consider it charity, it goes one directional and um, makes them dependent, or maybe it's a, you know, some exchange rather than welfare. Uh, I mean, are those the kind of things you're thinking about or? Yeah, again, or, it depends. So there, again, you know, when there's like a disaster, right. you know, there are times or times of crisis in a person's life where they were like, you know, I handout is kind of a, uh, has a negative connotation to it, but people just need that basic help. That's, that's Certainly. okay. Like, I, I don't want to stigmatize that. Right. Um, but it's, it's equally wrong to presume that that's all they ever need, um, that they can never themselves be a producer. They can never themselves offer something of value. So again, it depends. I, I, I like the idea, the focus you guys have of focusing on people's church community, because then it's a question not of, simply, you know, how do we meet this person's needs again and again and again and again, but how do we integrate them into our community? How do we mm. make them not someone, an other, but one of us, right? A, a brother and a sister in Christ um, uh, on, on an equal footing in, in terms of at least the idea that we're all contributing um, to the same community and the same good. 
Um, that would change your perspective, I think. So you might still meet a person who needs those basic needs met. And, and yeah, that's fine if, if that's it. Uh, make sure they have a warm coat for the winter. That's fine. Um, but maybe they already do. Um, or maybe they're like, you know what? Uh, you know, a, a great example, actually, a, another thing to think about, something I, I wish more churches would think about, um, is sometimes they'll have like emergency funds. Mm-hmm. And I think those are great. And I think they, I, you know, even when I was back when my wife and I were first married, we've, we've benefited from that kind of help from our church before. Um, and I think it's good to have that, but I think it'd be great if churches also had like an emergency funds of, for lending. Cause there are a lot of people that are like, well, you know what, if I can just get back on my feet, I pay you back. Um, and that might sound weird. Um, and I certainly don't think the, the church should be, uh, you know, sending people to like debt collectors or anything like that if they can't pay back. But but there is act weirdly something affirming about telling someone, okay, we'll give you this money with the expectation that you pay back because you're actually telling them, we expect that you'll be able mm. to do this. You're, you're affirming their ability mm. uh, to get back on their feet and to do that. And when they do, well, now you got those funds back and you can help somebody else with them, right? So the same funds actually can go a lot, a lot longer um, if you're doing that sort of thing. Um, I also would... Um, highly recommend against churches lending interest. Uh, we don't need to necessarily get into that <laughs> in particular, um, but I definitely don't think that would be an appropriate place for it. But I do think I I, I think you can. There are ways to to add at least more tools uh, to a church's um, you know ministry profile, however you want to think about it, um, that aren't just limited to that. You know the the, the food or coach closet or whatever, like, that's good. Don't get rid of those. <laughs> Keep those, you know, do the soup kitchen, whatever, but, but hopefully do more and, and hopefully look around again. There are probably people already in your community who have the resources to help people along these lines. Like I said, you know, the business owners in our own parish, uh, you know, I saw them doing exactly what I think is, is, is what people need to do. Um, but I don't even think they thought about it. You know what I mean? And not, 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 not that they aren't smart people or anything like that, but it's just something that they did. And they didn't think like, oh, I'm, I, this is mission work or this is ministry. It was just, here's a person, they need a job and I can help them and I'm going to do it. And um, if you want more of that, we'll tell people about how great it is. You know, um, hopefully if there's any pastors or priests listening, um, I, you know, those people are, are a great resource to you, I hope, um, in your community. And I hope not just for their tithing, well, I certainly hope they, they do. Um, but I, I hope I hope you look at them as, oh, no, these people have something really essential to offer our community. Again, the, the body of Christ metaphor, I think, is so key that, you know, just because a hand isn't a foot doesn't mean it's not useful. Yeah, you can't walk on it or it's awkward to do so. Um, but there's a lot of things you need your hands for. Um, and the same way, the, there's people of all sorts of different talents um, in, in your community and people with all sorts of different needs. And the more we learn to value those things and to value each person as having something to off- offer, the better we're going to be at, at actually meeting each other's needs and, and serving one another. Hmm. That re- reminds me, um, I think I think I initially got this this thought from uh, Jonah Goldberg's podcast, but he will, he will talk about the distinction between... Um, money that's given in a, in a welfare type relationship and money that's given in community, um, money that's given in community has natural, um, expectations attached to it. Um, so if, 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 a if my 
my brother who's in a in a rough patch asked to borrow money from me, I have a relationship with him that he wouldn't have from say the county or the city and can say, hey, yeah, but I expect you to XYZ. If you're gonna if you're gonna live on my couch for a couple of weeks, we're gonna expect these things and they're they're expectations that are invitations back into community and connection and um uh, able to interact in the way we all want everyone to interact. Um and I just you bring up the church piece. I'd n- I've never thought of it in that capacity, and I'll think about that more. But it's I like that I, I tr- I'm trusting that you can do this and want you to be a part of this community uh, in that way. And I think that's that's really fascinating. Yeah, there's a great essay I read um, several years ago, and uh, it talked about how people have the exact wrong expectations for career and romance. Romance, they think it has to be like a rom-com, like a serendipitous, right place, right time sort of thing. Um, But we actually know what makes a healthy relationship. It's all the things I already mentioned. It's communicating, apologizing, forgiving. You could kind of have a good marriage with almost anybody (laughs) if you you two can both do those (laughs) things. Um, uh, However, careers is very much... It, it, you know, we people think, oh, I just got to go to the right school and I get my degree and then career falls into my lap. Actually, mm. it's very much, are you at the right place, the right time? Who do you know? All those sorts of things. Well, churches are an extra answer to that question of who do you know, right? Uh, you know, somebody is looking to, um, to, to get out of a hard place in their life. Well, hopefully you, you're expanding that network that they have to fall back on and to, to prop them up. Um, and yeah, I think, I think churches should view themselves that way. I, 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 I hope it's not this, I mean, you can see this mindset sometimes, um, again, sometimes very, very well intended, um, but people might think of the church in purely economic terms of, well, we have the producers, that's like the pastor and maybe the elders and the ministry team mm-hmm. or whatever. And then we have the consumers, that's the parishioners, you know, they're looking at the people on the stage or they're, you know, um they're the ones who are coming up to receive communion and the other people are giving it to them instead of no we're all part of this this community we all you know the each person has a role to play those roles are different um but there's there's an inherent value to everyone involved um and the church is all of the people and not just the people with robes or ties or you know whatever your tradition may happen to, to have we're on the West Coast. So we usually don't wear ties. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> but that, that is, yeah, you really hit that on the head on the, the potential consumeristic aspects of church. And you, I, I like the, the talk of consumption in the book. You quoted Jensen uh, saying, consumerism is really nothing more or less than human consumption unredeemed by Christ. And mm-hmm. that in, in purchases, that, that can be true. But I think it's equally true in a church context where you're going, I, I am a consumer and you give me what I want to consume rather than a, um, rather than thinking I'm part of this community and, and supposed to be engaging the, the proper way. Uh, that's really, that's really fitting. Um, yeah, absolutely. So you ended the book with, I don't know if it's 10 or, or so, what if scenarios, what if um, what if there was no profit? What if there was no private property and, and many others? Um, which of those what if scenarios do you think is the more most important one to think through in, in 2022 right now in the current context? 
Uh, well, the easy answer for me, it would be a cop out would be the last one is is free markets and all the previous ones are essential for it. So, uh, so it's kind I of choose like all everyone. of them. <laughs> um, so I won't say that one, even though I do think it, it matters. Um, and it is something that's it's often very misunderstood. Um, but I think I would say rule of law. Um, I think that's the most fundamental. Um, the idea of equality before the law, um, that even the leaders, the governors, the king, whoever, um, is subject to the same rules um, and that that justice is available um, to everyone in society. Um, things like presumption of innocence before uh, a verdict, um, you know, habeas corpus, all that sort of stuff. Um, if you if you don't have that, then what you have is um, I think it was, you know, Augustine talked about how, you know, a uh, um, uh, empire without justice is just robbery right it's just a, it's just a big band of robbers you know he used mm. an example of like a pirate talking to alexander the great saying well really there's no difference between you and me like you do it with armies i do it with my my ship and my crew or you know or whatever but um there if there's no justice uh then you can't you have nothing to build on um you're never going to have any of those other things if you don't have that that baseline of uh of the rule of law um so that's always it's, it's something that needs to be constantly maintained um, in every society all the time. Um, and there's, frankly, there's constantly, you know, um, violations of it. There's little bits of favoritism here and there. Um, the good news is uh, the goal is actually not perfection. Um, uh, there's a great book by my, my former um, director of research. He's now moved on, but um, Samuel Gregg, uh, he co-wrote. Um, it's called The Theory of Corruption, which we published by ACT. And he talked about how there's actually at a certain point a cost of rooting out corruption that is way too much for you to pay. So the good news is, is what you want is corruption to be at a low enough level that justice mm. can happen. Um, not that it's zero, uh, because if you were trying to pour all your resources in it to get it down to zero, it would actually kind of bankrupt you and you know, to use an economic metaphor. But um so the good news is, yes, you know, even in if you look around, you, you can see a lot of examples of things that I think are genuinely unfair. Um, but the question is, OK, but, you know, average person goes before a judge. What's the result? Or, or you know, are the laws um, on the whole being enforced uh, consistently? Um, that's something that's very measurable across countries. Um, and, and once again, I think it's it's just absolutely fundamental for any other basic rights or freedoms. Um, and, and again, these are things that I, I don't think of in the abstract in a, as if you can separate them from this Christian anthropology. I think if you believe human beings are created in the image of God, then you have to want these things. And, and Christians, thankfully, have a long history of of promoting this in society in a way that um, really didn't exist uh, before them. You know, paganism was was radically um, unequal and favoritistic, and um, Christian civilization ha has had a lot of problems as well. Um, but but there's a lot of ways in which they they elevated um, the people at the bottom, even if they didn't bring them all the way up to the top. They, they elevated them so that there was a baseline um, of, of justice uh, throughout society that really had not been there before. That's really good. And and I was reminded as you were talking that justice, I think, resonates with the human heart. We desire there to be justice. We desire there to be a rule of law that is maintained well. And as you're talking about the 
potentially infinite cost to completely root out corruption in society. We, as those as members of the church, belong to a story where we're waiting for the kingdom that has the king who rules with justice and righteousness, and there will be no corruption. So we can we can ring we can feel that ring true here that desire for justice, but also long for the day when when there will be no injustice, there will be no corruption. Right. So I'm also I'm a gradualist, right? I I think that it's up to Christ ultimately to to finally destroy death and sin. Hopefully, we can be agents of that in our own small ways uh, through His grace. But um, but I think Christians should be very wary of any kind of utopianism. There's actually a great saying from uh, the Desert Fathers. I can't remember the monk's name. Uh, but he said, you know, if man were to make a new heaven and a new earth, still he could not be free from temptation. Hmm. Right. It's all, it's only when when Christ inaugurates a new heaven and a new earth uh, that that will be the case. And hmm. any of our attempts to do so um, are certain to just find new manifestations of our sin. Um, so we need to be guarded about that sort of a thing. You know, you would think it would be a great idea, you know, and, and again, I think we should keep uh, corruption down to a minimum. Um, but the idea of, okay, we're going to get rid of every last sort of thing. Uh, well, now you end up with a sort of crusader mentality. And um, there's a lot of other evils that can come about um, mm. through through trying to enforce that sort of absolutism. Let's say I'll, I'll let you have the last word on all that. That's really good. Um, is there, uh, if people want to look up more or uh, read read more of your work, where should they go? Yeah, so um, I, I have an academia.edu page if there's any scholars um, uh, listening. I, I'm on Twitter. It's just my name, uh, Dylan Pommen. Uh, it's spelled like Bob Dylan. Uh, it's named after him. Um, and uh, uh, and I'm also, I'm, I've been writing an ongoing series. I do write op-eds every now and then. I had actually a few, um, two this year in the Wall Street Journal I co-authored. So that was kind of a big deal. Um, but I've been writing an ongoing series uh, at um, uh, Ancient Faith Ministries blog called Every Thought Captive. Um, again, I'm, I'm Greek Orthodox, so it's on Orthodox Christian social thought. Um, but really, the, the series started with, well, here's what other traditions are doing. And now let's talk about the Bible. And then let's go from the Bible through the last 2000 years of church history. So it's something that I, I would think Christians of any tradition could be interested in and benefit from. And I actually just had a essay published today as of this recording on orthodox social thought in the russian empire so um it tries to take a good bad and ugly approach i don't think you know just like i don't think we should be utopian about the future we shouldn't be romantic about the past um there's um something to learn there's there's good people there are genuine saints but um we're all sinners and and you're going to see that in, in a period of history so um uh, I've been really enjoying writing it, and I and I certainly hope that it's something that other people could could find a lot of benefit from. I think there are treasures um, still yet to be mined um, from Christian history and especially from Eastern Christian history uh, for our lives in the present, for serving our neighbors, for loving our neighbors, and um, you know imitating Christ. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure talking with you. Um, and thank you listeners for listening in. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us. If you find what we're doing helpful, a review is obviously, uh, goes a long way and, but also share it with a friend. You can send us questions at comment at city on a hill podcast.com. And, uh, until next time we look forward to the next conversation.
Thanks for having me.